here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel, and I literally was worried about being out of practice. It has been simply a long time since I've spoken at all. I'm like Holly Hunter in the piano. Not a piece <laughs> has come out of me since last episode. It, it has been a significant amount of time since we've been on the air, which is, which is wild because I remember when we never took a day off ever. No. In fact, we used to do multiple episodes a week. I, I I definitely did not have more thoughts to compensate for how much more time we spent on the air. So I, I don't know what I said or what went down. By the way, you know what else I've been thinking about? When I set up my laptop for this, for because we film up uh, the episodes every week, mm-hmm. um, I use some books to put my laptop on. And we always I always use this book uh, that we got because Anthony from Queer Eye was here, his like dinner recipes book. And I I barely glance at the title when I use it. And the name of the book is Anthony, Let's Do Dinner. But the let's do is in such small font that it looks just like nothing. It looks like it says at. So I always assume the book was called Anthony at Dinner, which <laughs> I think is really lovely. I think you should have <laughs> called it that. He's like Beatrice. Um, I, you know what? I had almost forgotten about that era where we did two episodes a week. Again, I would love to know what um, we said or what what what, what nerve we had. Journey. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, back and a lot has occurred. A lot has occurred. We have, um, unfortunately, um, we'll get to that in a minute. But I have an early keep it gripe, um, mostly because I spent Thanksgiving in Europe, um, but for the first time ever. Uh, my luggage was lost and this has truly never happened to me before ever and so like I was always like um I'm one of those people who is going to be able to avoid it but I had no luggage for like a week wandering the streets of Prague which really felt like I was embracing the bohemian experience right no getting very literal about being bohemian and also this feels like the beginning of like a rom-com somebody pitches right like no luggage in Prague starring Jude Law or whomever (laughs) okay but the actual title no luggage in Prague sounds like a homework (laughs) <laughs> I would watch that too. Um anyway, it was it was dealt with, but uh I have a bone to pick with Delta. So Oh my god, you sound like you sound like a ninth place like drag those... queen complaining about Delta Airlines right now. I'm really excited. <laughs> Half of Twitter is drag queens yelling at Delta, if you didn't know. Yeah. Uh, but this this is actually just gonna turn into Delta Works um podcast where she complains about things. <laughs> oh right. That's a, that's a good living for her. I've been proud of Delta work ever since she went viral for all the ranting and stuff. Plus, it reminded me of... So I was recently re-watching these two clips of one um, Barbara on The View and another of um, Don Lemon on CNN. And I missed the era of anchors complaining publicly about people who've aggrieved them because... Um, 
Barbara complained on this episode of The View that um, Lindsay Lohan canceled an interview with her um, and then instead decided to skip out and go to Jay Leno. And Don Lemons that same week um, was him complaining about an interaction he'd had with Jonah Hill that he said was uh, Jonah Hill was rude to him and thought he was the help at a hotel. Oh, I I know exactly what you mean. First of all, that has always been something that Kathy Griffin was in on the ground floor about, like pointing out the weird things about Barbara Walters, because she was really like, we treated Barbara Walters like she was some ivory tower academic for like 30 years. And she really is like a petty dame, like somebody who's like, oh, I remember what whomever uh, uh, Fidel Castro said to me that one night in 1979. I'll never forgive him for it. (laughs) She's somebody who keeps score, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, th- that's just what's been on my mind as I've been thinking angrily about Delta Airlines. So <laughs> um, we have, um, unfortunately, a sad episode this week. Partly, I have. I, I, I don't know when this show became like um, the dead celebrity club. I know. But, and I kind of don't uh, <laughs> want it to be. But at the same time, the celebrities keep dying who I believe we specifically have talked about in depth. So it feels like, yes. well, you have to say something, you know. <laughs> um, no, I mean, uh, we're going to talk about Christine McVie this week. Um, and truly, when I found out the news, I was at a dinner um, and a friend um, – told me about it but like within their second breath they were like have you checked in on lewis <laughs> also i have to say when this happened first of all the way i found out was somebody messaged me on instagram we're gonna need to help you're gonna need to help us with the passing of christine mcvee so immediately i was i was, I was already supposed to know and i was behind i think i was in rehearsal at kimmel so i like found out on the slide um but uh, i mean before we get into this conversation i just want to say Many, many people have reached out to me about it, and I, it was incredibly touching. And 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 just, um, uh, uh, I don't know what to say about it. I'm, I, I'm, I can't stop listening to Christine Miffy this past week. We'll talk about her music and Fleetwood Mac and stuff. But um, I real as much as we talk about dead celebrities on the show, I can't think of somebody that close to like my 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 like innermost celebrity love layer that has died. You know, like, uh, mm. like the last one would be someone like Madeline Kahn. Like that's 1999, you know? So uh, it yeah. actually was a bit of a, a shocking phenomenon to me, even though the thought occurred to me that Christine McVie was sick because she just had this large estate sale. Like I was going through her like mm. stuff she was selling and I was like, this isn't even that expensive. I'll buy like a Christine McVie chinoiserie end table for a hundred bucks. <laughs> you know, like, I, like it was on my mind. Um, I would probably say the last one that really sort of hit me, but I guess I can't, I don't know if I can really include like Prince and yeah. Whitney Houston, mostly because they're such mega. Right. They belong to like, everybody. They, they touch yes. everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, unless you're like Hilton Alls, you know, who just wrote his like yeah. novella on um, Prince, you know, like, unless, you know, like, or I think of something like a writer, like Nicole Perkins, you know, like someone who like Prince is very much part of their identity, but those people belong to everyone. Um, so, yeah, we'll talk about Christine. Uh, we're also going to talk about Irene Cara. Depressing. Um, when when right I heard before. that, I was like, I just don't want to hear this. Like, she's not that old. And very annoying, in addition to devastating. Yeah. Also, um, Kirstie Alley passed away truly last night. Yes. So, 
us that and managed to um, not be like everyone online who's um, RIP to Casey Elliott has all start every single one starts with politics aside dot 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 and I'm like girl we get it. <laughs> and also, by the way, that is beyond generous. To say it was only politics that was her problem, the woman was fucking unhinged. I'm sorry. It remains the same in death. It's not like she voted for a different class president. Yeah, okay? right. Like, there, there, was a, there, was a lot, there was a lot going on yeah. with Miss Kirstie Alley. Um, so we'll talk about that. And then Sight and Sound released their um, 100 greatest films list. And it caused controversy all throughout the film industry. Uh, and truly, I actually love when film critics um, get upset about things. Uh, that'll be fun to talk about. No, I love, I love the, the, uh, the, the sound of wounded men. It just, it just, that's just what the internet is, you know what I mean? So it's really embracing its identity by squealing that whatever wasn't, that psych, or not psycho, that Vertigo wasn't number one or Citizen Kane wasn't number one. And you famously hate Vertigo. You know what? I it's I just I, what I don't like about Vertigo is the creepiness of Alfred Hitchcock that I feel is on screen in the movie. Again, when you listen to an interview with Tippi mm-hmm. Hedren talking about her experience with Alfred Hitchcock, I feel like the feel of Vertigo is forever altered in your mind afterwards. And then aside from that, we have the very delightful Jim Parsons on the show this week to talk about his new film, Spoiler Alert, which is not about um, Marvel Phase 4. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, White Lotus and what's going to happen the next week. My God. Tw- and I really have to avoid Twitter at all times because of these uh, what people think about White Lotus. And routinely, they are extremely wrong. <laughs> not even just Twitter, Instagram. Like, the minute the episode drops, there are screenshots of dialogue and important moments just, like, in everybody's um, Instagram stories. So it's like it's like a truly a minefield after an episode airs. Right. Um, which, by the way, the finale airs this Sunday. So you can assume that we will be talking about White Lotus next week and um, whether we like season one or season two better. I already know which way I'm leaning. Interesting. I actually haven't decided yet, so uh, stay tuned. Okay. All right. We will be right back with more Keep It. If you've ever messaged a friend about a manager who won't stop texting after hours or a coworker who keeps posting weirdly suggestive Austin Powers gifts in Slack, you're not alone. On Work Appropriate, author and host Anne Helen Peterson sets out to find solutions to these oddly specific yet completely universal listener-submitted questions. Whether you work in an office chair or a sixth-grade classroom, the problems may be limitless, but so are the solutions. Listen to Work Appropriate now wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Check it out. The world has lost two incredible performers and all-around legends recently with the passing of Irene Wood. Um, and we're going to give them their flowers in a minute. I feel like we should just address Kirstie Alley first. Oh, sure. I mean, w- w- let's start with like the things that are truly amazing about her, which is replacing Diane Chambers on Cheers is the tallest order in TV history. And that she not only did it well, 
but never copied her for a second, never copied Shelley Long for a second. And then additionally, like, won an Emmy for it. Uh, Rebecca Howe was like an awesome character. Her like she she had a uh, a withering, sarcastic quality that made you trust her, uh, which that quality right there is what is so vexing about Christy Alley because in all of her comedy performances, whether she was playing it um, really loud and crazy like in Deconstructing Harry or, you know, uh, like on Cheers where she got to be a little bit more deadpan as Rebecca Howe, you, there, there was a groundedness to her that made you believe her. So when she then turned into this conspiracy spewing, um, very pro-Scientology, uh, you know, otherwise harmful and toxic Twitter presence – it just fucking sucked. Like that, it, it's it's the kind of person who's like catnip for young gay men. You know, I want that you know funny Lauren Bacall looking lady to be the best, and then she absolutely wasn't the best. Even though, in about 2011, she went on a queer Twitter spree and followed a whole bunch of us. So I can say that a part of my life was occasionally receiving DMs from Kirstie Alley, and I know there are a bunch of other gays out there who feel the same <laughs> way. And that was also like completely strange. Like. What? Like, you're like a Scientologist. What? You're talking to me? What? Yeah. She was trying to collect and get rid of it. <laughs> right. I had to look out the window. I'm like, who are these people on my porch? Yeah. Um, what's weird, too, is that, like, I feel like people like my mom's generation, too, or even slightly older people um, than, than us um, were fans of her just because, like, she was, you know, like, Black people watch a lot of TV, you know? So, like, and especially, like, a sitcom like that. Like, I feel like a lot of black people have, like, love for Kirstie Alley from the Cheers era. Uh, and then, you know, she had her own sitcom again. Totally. You know? Veronica's Closet. And I think Veronica's Closet was hilarious, to be honest. I think it lasted, what, three seasons? Yeah, right. It's very in the Caroline in the City era where it's like, did it last two seasons or seven? Who knows? But they were all extremely well-watched seasons since it was during that period of time where Hundreds of millions watched every show every week, and they were all canceled <laughs> if they didn't get seven hundred million. Yeah, six hundred million was a um, It's specifically from that era where things were—I felt like they were immediately put into syndication just because of the number of ratings they had before they would even get to like the hundred episodes that you needed for syndication. Right. And so, I feel like the show was always on. Yes, totally. I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up Fat Actress, too. Oh, my Fat Actress is that bitch. What an underrated show that really showcased what she could do. You know, it's sort of in that, like, lost era of pseudo-prestige TV in the mid-2000s where, you know, you either had to buy it on DVD or something. You know, it's not something you would see in syndication, for example. So uh, definitely go back and check that out. And also, of course, the many movies in which she was hilarious, like the Look Who's Talking movies or uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous, you know, lots of options. Like, I have no idea what she ever did you know like recently like like the day-to-day um but i will always remember the stephen hawking tweet which should be repeated here uh it is one of the (laughs) most surprising and hilarious and i can't tell how intentionally funny she was being i guess she was going for like righteous tribute but when stephen hawking died that's right stephen hawking kirsty alley tweeted you had a good go at it thanks for your input Whatever that means. <laughs> like, she, she she assessed all his data. Yeah, we'll deal with that later, you know? Some of our um, listeners might remember um, how harrowing that scene was in Theory of Everything, though. Like, when Felicity Jones is yelling at Kirstie Alley to lay off. <laughs> all right, and 
getting into legacies that are far less checkered. Uh, Christine McVie passed away. Christine McVie, one of the uh, most hit-making songwriters for Fleetwood Mac, the keyboardist for Fleetwood Mac. She was in several versions of the band way back when it was a blues outfit uh, in the early 70s. She uh, moved with them through their most kind of famous period where they produced their uh, second self-titled album and Rumors. And uh, she left the band after they were uh, inaugurated into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the late 90s, but she came back in the 2000s. And first of all, we can just talk about the vocals, which is to say she was this weird combination of very bluesy and traditional pop. Like she had a Carole King sensibility, which, by the way, already is a pretty shocking thing to thrust forward into a rock and roll band. Like it was always interesting that somebody who had a kind of unassuming presence got to be in this larger than life outfit. Um, You know, her, her kind of simple... Um, plain spoken sentimentality really had extra verb thanks to like what Lindsay gave to it or, um, you know, it, 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 it just was an interesting juxtaposition the way she fit into the group. Specifically also, there's something about Fleetwood Mac that I think is, is just doesn't get talked about a lot or seems obvious to those people who are fans, but like we don't end up saying it, which is not only did this band have three great songwriters, it also had three unmistakable and very unrelated characters in it. So you'd have Mm -hmm. the Lindsey Buckingham songs and he's this like brooding kind of wounded uber masculine uh, guy. You had Stevie Nicks where she's constantly lost in the throes of emotions. You know, everything that happens to Stevie Nicks is a meteorological phenomenon. You know, everything is storms. Everything is a landslide. Everything is, you know, (laughs) a a bad day on a weather map is what happens to Stevie (laughs) Nicks. And then you had Christine who, I think the magic thing about her for me, and we've expressed this in certain ways on this podcast, but is that she really expressed the dignity in all these deep emotions. Like, even if you had your heart broken, it's not like you had to wail to express that. You could you could sort of just live in it and have like a sort of sophisticated and, um, and a respectful take about your own emotions. And I can't even really pick a favorite song, but I will say, You Make Loving Fun is to me the heart of the Rumors album because as much as that's a tumultuous album, you know, it's about fighting with each other, it's about um, these band members confronting and tearing themselves apart. To me, that song expresses why the fighting is all worth it, which is to say at the end of the day, love when we get it is fucking rad. And we get to like, you know, you know sex is incredible. And, uh, 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 you know, you know, when we're experiencing these big emotions together and we find it, it's such a fucking relief. There's such relief in that love song. And that is always why it'll be one of my favorite songs of all time. Isn't that the one that's not even about John, like her husband at the time? Correct. Yes, they're breaking up. And the story goes, uh, he was very curious why she was writing a jubilant love song. And she, um, you know, not creating drama, which is the Christine McVie way, said, oh, it's about the dog. And it was really about the lighting director. It was really about their lighting director, who she was having an affair with. And by the way, that lighting director stayed with them through 2019. So, yeah. just a part of the Fleetwood Mac lore. Um, I love this band, and I like truly think that, like you know, um, there's there's so many different eras of Fleetwood where you can sort of be like. Um, this is my favorite era. Like, I feel like it means so much to different people for different sounds. Like, you know, like I would say that Stevie's the first part that brought me into even liking Fleetwood, you know? And then I really started liking 
the Christine um, songs a lot. I mean, you know, Little Lies everywhere. Oh, like yeah. those, that is, I'm just so enamored with like Tangle in the Night as an album. Just Me because too. it That's comes a- mm-hmm. so late in their discography. Like two decades, what, after Christine even joined? It's just like someone writing the best music of their career, the best music of Fleetwood Mac's career, like on, what is it, like album 14? Right. I mean, it's it's like way deep into the, uh, you know, and and they've done so many weird things by that point. You know, that's well after Tusk. It's yeah. well after um, just all the iterations of Fleetwood Mac, really. But yes, on that album in particular, I've brought up how obsessed I am with Isn't It Midnight, which is a, a Christine-written song that sounds really like a Pat Benatar jam. And... Mm-hmm. uh the verve of it. To me, that's my number one driving song. In fact, it was my number one Spotify rap song of the past year because I listen to it every time I'm driving. And that was also <laughs> the day I found out Christine McVie died. So it was like doubly cruel. But um, yes, great song. Everywhere is amazing. By the way, I finally broke regarding Christine McVie. Like, actually had the moment where I like cried a bit when I got sent a cover of Everywhere that was live. And I want to know if you know what I'm talking about. I don't, actually. Who sang it? Paramore. Andy Williams did a version of it live, and it looks like they're on a boat or something. But this girl crushed it. Her choice to, like, uh, you know, in in the chorus to Everywhere, you know, there's the, huh, that part. What Kaylee Williams chooses to do instead is so exciting and so hit the joy of Christy McVie and Fleetwood Mac on the head. Uh, I really recommend it. It's a fabulous performance. Oh, okay. Uh, well, you know, me, Paramore stand. I've probably seen it before, but I'm not recollecting it. But I, I mean, I love Haley Williams' voice. And I think that that's, that's another person who I feel like has that Christine quality. Because when you listen to Paramore, you like a lot of people think of misery business, you know, that like one big, like raucous, like, you know, like, um, I'm stealing your man song, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are so many songs that really sort of, I think, go to what you were saying about Christine. You know, they're sort of like running away from drama. A lot of songs like by Paramore, like Playing God or Brick by Brick, Boring Brick, are just really sort of about calling out like men who are sort of self-serious and creating drama around a relationship. And I feel like they have sort of the same sort of like chill, bluesy quality one of my favorite christine songs is one of her early ones um i'd rather go blind um she did with chicken chat and then re-recorded for uh her debut album but like covering etta james and sounding that fucking good like she has this i mean i'm sure she was in fleetwood back so you know i'm like sure they were all chain smoking and doing all sorts of cocaine and everything uh she even had that interview where she was like uh cocaine and champagne made me perform better but like to have such heroic smoky voice at that age it just sounds so beautiful and when i think about rumors too and everyone's always sort of like i want a rumors movie i want a rumors tv show and i hope to god we get one and that ryan murphy stays away from it but (laughs) i would also say I for, you forget how old they were. They oh, were like right. late twenties making rumors, and I don't know. I think just something about rock stars from the seventies um, or that sort of era, like being our age now. When we look back on them, like you can only really think of them as like older or sort of like our parents and stuff. And it's just weird remembering like no, they were the age as like you know the 
youngest people like in pop music right now making music. And we almost did get a Christine McVie biopic once upon a time. It was supposed to be Aaron Eckhart as Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys, whom Christine mm. dated for a while. And then Vera Farmiga was supposed to play uh, Christine McVie. This is a very 2011 cast list. Uh, I, I would have loved to see it at the time. Uh, and I, I hope we get some version of it. It's a very interesting pairing. Christine, by the way, it, it, it's so interesting how she's just casually one of those people who she really seemed to hang around with guys like her whole, like the way she got into Fleetwood Mac. Like she was a big fan of the band Fleetwood Mac before she Mm -hmm. even joined when it was the Peter Green outfit. She just has that casual, like one of the guys quality, but it was also like her point of view within the band was so feminine. It's, it's like there was an act of subversion about her, how, how she propelled these sentiments through this band. Um, Yeah. So anyway, there was like this um, interview that was going around too, like them, you know, as it was like her and Lindsay and Stevie, you know, asking about like, you know, it was sort of a sexist interview, obviously, because it was the 70s. Um, but it was talking about women being in the band. And, you know, like, it really is just interesting to think about not just um, a woman in a rock band like that at that time, but like two women who were basically like stars of the band. Like in the interview, um, Stevie, I think, even said, you know, well, like, the difference with other rock bands, you know, where they put like a girl in it, you know, it's like, um, if me or Christine are sick, Fleetwood Mac doesn't go on. Right. People are coming to see us. Yeah, totally. Also, it, it just should be acknowledged. It's completely strange that there are two women in a, in a giant rock band. You know, yeah. it's like, besides the mamas and the papas, when did that really happen in the 60s and 70s? I mean, like we got eventually into like the go-go's and the runaways and things like that, but the way they were part of the dynamic in this band that was men and women, it just, we don't have another band like that. ABBA comes to mind, but that's like, you know, the women weren't the songwriters in that band, you know? So that's like a little bit different too. Two things I want to bring up though. You mentioned Dennis Wilson and another one of my favorite songs um, from Christine is um, on another one of my favorite albums, Mirage, um, um, which has my favorite Fleetwood song actually, which is Gypsy. And that's, by Stevie, but um, only over you, which was written about Dennis Wilson, um, is such a gorgeous song, and I think it has that same quality of um, not the same quality. Um, I think it has that opposite quality of like you make love and fun because that was you know about um, you know falling in love with someone else, you know when there's all this um, torment going on in your life, and this was really sort of like I believe the song came out like right around the end of Dennis's life too. And like, he was a drug addict at the time and, you know, he had gotten fucked up by like his involvement with the Manson family. Um, and I think like people said that he really sort of blamed himself for becoming friends with Charles Manson and sort of introducing him to Hollywood and the music industry. Um, and so like that sort of sent him down a dark path, but that song is really just sort of like her summing up their relationship and the good parts about it. And just sort of how there's always, um things that are beautiful that you remember about people who were with you um so i think that's a gorgeous song i love that and, song and uh, yeah i, I want to point out just a couple of maybe underrated songs people don't know uh, of christine mcvee's if you don't know sky's the limit um love shines is a great song by her save me um she she really did a great job of like adding an adult quality to the raucous celebratory vibe we already know about rock and roll that's i think what was mm-hmm. her strong suit and um, 
we associate Stevie so much with our relationship with Lindsay Buckingham, but I want to say underrated for me, um, Lindsay Buckingham, Christine McVie, that joint album that they did in 2017 is Buckingham so good. McVie. Yeah, it's so good. So good. Yeah, it, it's it, that will now. Uh, Christine's actually nominated for a Grammy this year for a collection she just did called Songbird. But that I think will go down as like, you know, right up until the end, she was creating this like really splendid music that feels very true to both her and Lindsay. There's some video of them recording this in the in the booth, and when they're done recording it, the two of them share this hug that goes on so long. You can feel the years and the years of the history of there of, of how thankful they are that the both of them like that you know Lindsay really interprets something about Christine and Christine can really interpret something about Lindsay and you can sense that dynamic there and how just grateful they are that they have the, each other after, and after all these years after all the tumult after all the continued fighting that happens in that band you know they all the members always said that Christine was a bomb in the group and the energy was better when she was in the group but I, th- I think in general, they, you know, that th- the magic of that band is they found a way to come back together and make loving fun, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, just it's her last album to that she recorded before she died. And so it is, you should listen to it if you haven't um, listened to it, mostly because she also talks about how, like, you know, years later, she, it helped her rediscover her love of music, you know? Um, right. And this is somebody who spent all these years out of Fleetwood Mac because she had a, deathly uh flight fear she like moved to the country like did nothing had nothing to do with music for a long time sort of just succumbed to um phobias for a while and and triumphantly came out of it so she should be applauded for that too yeah um and that's also like sort of a sad segue into irene Kara, who talking about sort of like phobias and sort of like clues i think there was a story today you know just about how in her later years she sort of removed herself from society and was just sort of like at home, you know, and didn't yeah. like interacting with people. But um to talk about Irene Kara, that music is phenomenal. It is so that that I mean that is why that is why people remember fame. The the theme oh, yeah. song is why people remember fame. Hot lunch is why people remember fame. Okay. Those are those are like 80s anthems. And to then be able to do that again for like Flashdance and win the Oscar for it, fantastic. Yes, total. I mean, I mean, well, Oscar trivia people know that um, Irene Kerr was the first um, black woman. She's uh, African, Puerto Rican, and Cuban. Um, first black woman to win an Oscar in a non-acting category, which is among the most damning statistics in Oscar history. Um, <laughs> I want to be clear: this is 1983 uh, that this finally happened, uh, but. When you look at the history of the best original song, Oscar, there are a lot of good songs. Uh, you know, you have your Over the Rainbows, you have your Moon Rivers, but there aren't so many that make you think like, yes, this song in that movie. And I think Flashdance, What a Feeling is a definitive winner. Um, and by the way, she wrote the lyrics to that song just in the taxi on the way to go and record it. So, like, <laughs> and I guess an Oscar can happen to all of us in an Uber. I have no idea. But... The, like it, that's such a New York it, story. By the I way. know, You're I know. Just in it's, the taxi, it's, and like it feels so fame. No, exactly. It's like she was living in fame after the movie Fame came out. By the way, um, but there's something about that song where it's like one, it makes you think of the movie. Mm-hmm. Two, it makes the movie better, and then three, it stands on its own. So yeah. it really has the like essential ingredients in uh, a great win. I watched a performance of 
Irene's on the old David Letterman show in the early 80s. She performed Out Here on My Own from mm. Fame, which was uh, also Academy Award nominated and written by Leslie Gore of It's mm. My Party fame. Yes. Ain't nobody here dislikes Leslie Gore and her brother, <laughs> Michael Gore. And he won the Oscar for writing the title song from Fame. So he was nominated mm. for two Oscars that year, in addition to score, I believe, so three. Uh, Out Here on My Own, also iconic cover by... Um, Mariah Carey, which I believe is in oh, Glitter. Of course. Um, Fame is such a Mariah-ish movie. You know she was obsessed with that growing <laughs> up. Yeah. Um, I think my grandmother was obsessed with watching Fame too. It's just like there's there's no way that 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 you weren't obsessed with Fame if you aren't a uh, if you're a musician, a star, a performer um, who's sort of from that era. You know, if you were a teen uh, in the eighties, like you're obsessed with that and. Um, I want to go back to that Oscar ceremony, by the way, because um, I was like, I'm sure these are all things that you know, but I was just looking up like the 83 Academy Awards because I'd seen oh, a yeah. photo of her with the, oh, he was the presenter right. for um, Best Song that year along with um, Jennifer Beals. And that had me looking at the presenters and performers for 83. 83 was also the, the Terms of Endearment winning year. Right. Uh, and um these presenters are so hilarious to me, but it's also giving star, you know? It's like Timothy Hutton and Mary Tyler yep. Moore presented Best Supporting Actor. We had Kevin Bacon and Daryl Hannah doing sound effects. Joan Collins and Arnold Schwarzenegger did the Academy of Scientific and Technical Awards. Um, These like Hirschfeld drawings of celebrities, crazy. like major, like insane celebrities. <laughs> Mel Gibson and Sissy Spacek doing best screenplay. Um, and Rock also, because Mel Minnelli Gibson, that, best actress. Oh, right, right. Oh, my God. Yeah. Rock Hudson. I mean, that would have been very near the end for Rock Hudson. But um, Mel Gibson, yeah, would have been that year in uh, The Year of Living Dangerously because Linda Hunt won best supporting actress that year. Oh, yeah. That's right. So, you know. And he a, was a unbelievably hot in that movie. Anyway, <laughs> Frank Capra presented best picture that year. How could he still be alive around that time? This is a man who dominated the <laughs> 1930s. <laughs> and, and lastly, um, Dolly Parton and Sylvester Stallone presented the award for Best Actor. And of course, they are the stars of Rhinestone, which, you know, not really Oscar canon, but somebody's canon. Yeah. The other thing about Irene, I want to say, is that um, she got her start in Sparkle. Um, which the soundtrack to Sparkle, I love. It has it's Aretha Franklin, and she does the song "Jump" on that is a, a particularly spicy song. I love spicy Aretha, you know, like uh, Rock Steady, etc. It's nice to remember those songs. As if you're going to listen to Flashdance and Fame, you know, like her her solo stuff was um is full of like hits that I feel like could be played at like a horse speed disco or something and someone would be shazamming it and be like, what is this song? It's great. And I hope that's the case. I hope people are shazam. If you don't know why me by Irene Cara, great eighties, um, supercharged banger. Uh, anyway, uh, when we are back, we will be joined by Jim Parsons to talk about his new film. Spoiler alert. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? 
<laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Jump into the world of Wildcrats at Philadelphia's Please Touch Museum. Explore the world of this PBS Kids series in the Wildcrats Creature Power Museum exhibit, opening May 31st. Discover animal habits from around the world as you swing through the trees like a spider monkey, sneak through the forest like a jaguar, hunt for lunch like a platypus, and much more in this adventurous new exhibit. Get tickets at pleasetouchmuseum.org. That's pleasetouchmuseum.org. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. You obviously know him from his most famous role in The Big Bang Theory, but as well as The Normal Heart, Hollywood, The Boys in the Band, and now his new film, Spoiler Alert, we are thrilled to welcome to Keep It the delightful Jim Parsons. Hello. Hi. Hi. Well, well I, oh God, I hope that's not true. Um, but <laughs> I will say, I was talking about somebody recently and I thought and I said um you know when I first started working 
I, I, the fear was being, well, the fear was being found out as gay. I was, uh, I was, I'm old enough that that was true uh, to a certain degree. And then the second fear was being always, always cast as gay and not allowed to play straight. And, and I still think that's a real thing, but I will say that I have been, I really, it has been such a blessing to play these gay characters and, and the, the types of characters and the depth of, the depth of story and, and humanity in those things that I was doing that in has been a self awakening and journey. Unlike any, I would have gotten if I had not played them. Um, so in that way, it's, it's just really funny to hear you say it like that. Cause I didn't know if anybody else in the world would, would pick up on that or could pick up on that the way I had for myself, which was that, it has changed it has changed my life in a way to play those different gay characters and explore explore the differences in in one major similarity you know yeah and i mean even in this film spoiler alert um which is based on of course um michael osiello's book spoiler alert the hero dies at the end you it seems it's wild that I was watching it and was like, oh, it obviously plays the tropes of, you know, like a gay rom-com, but it's also about Michael's uh, partner dying of cancer. And so you've also tapped into now maybe the first like um, gay fault in our stars, almost <laughs> like it's a genre of like, I feel yeah. like we haven't seen. And it's if normally it would be like my partner's dying of AIDS, but that's that's right. That's right. Well, and, and what you say there is is true. And also the opposite is true, which is that it is a genre we've seen all of our lives, but we've not really watched it with two men or two people of the same sex going through it. And I know for me, for all the ways in which I connected with the material and wanted to make the movie, that it had to do with specific ways in which I did relate to it as a, as a gay man in a long-term relationship, more than any of it, or as much as that, was the universality of the story and the way it did it did line up with stories that I had grown up with loving and being moved by. Um, it was just a little bit extra powerful for me because now it was that much easier to put myself in their shoes. Um, but I do think that's one of my favorite things. I know it is one of my favorite things about this film is that in one way of looking at it, gay love story is really not the headline. It really is just love story. And then they happen to be gay. You know, it really is just family and humanity. And they also happen to be gay. And that um, that's that was thrilling and is thrilling to be a part of. There's something specific about Michael Asiello that is explored in this movie that I find interesting, which is that his relationship to all of his emotions and to life is filtered through pop culture. Um, there are there's an awesome scene where his partner discovers that Michael Osceola has a room full of Smurf stuff. Uh, there's a, there are several uh, scenes in the movie where he imagines his childhood as a rom-com with all these like um, harrowing moments in it. And I was wondering if you related to that at all, if you sort of looked to pop culture growing up as a way to explain yourself or find yourself uh, in life. It's interesting. I don't see any way that I didn't. I don't see it. I don't think it's possible for me to have grown up in the time I did in our country and and not. And and to many degrees still do. Still still learning lessons right or wrong from from a kind of 
pop culture or whatever that may or may not um, actually work for you in your own personal real life storyline. Um, but I definitely, I feel like for me, the biggest thing was when we came across the idea to frame Michael's childhood through uh, the lens of an 80s sitcom. And that, that really felt powerful to me when we, when we talked about that, because I thought, I just thought it was very moving and relatable. The idea of he went through some real hardships with his, you know, family before and, and death in the family before the whole kit story. And it would make such sense to me that he would find a way to put it in the framework of a comforting laugh track filled, you know, buoyancy. Um, that was the way to, to be able to look at it as clearly as he could and as safely for himself as he could. Um, but all of these points really did jump off in one way or another back to the way Michael wrote his book, which was also framed in an episodic TV type way, you know, next week on or previously on or things like that. And so he really was the impetus for where this creative train went um, from the beginning. I mean, well, speaking of, you know, the um, sitcom flashbacks, you know, you spent so much of your life um, and career on The Big Bang Theory. You know, what you have, I feel like you have so many different sort of acting muscles that you've had to um, work out. You know, I feel like you, you started in theater in Houston um, and then you did a sitcom and now you're doing more dramatic roles. Sort of what does each sort of take out of you or do you find that they're sort of similar in doing all three things? I feel similar in that I rarely, if ever consciously approach any job with like, now I'm trying a whole new game plan. I'm going to, I'm going to, this is different than this. So I'm going to tackle it in this different way. I have never, I, I have never consciously done that. Obviously as I've grown and changed as a person, just inherently my approach probably changes, but I will say that, you know, and this sort of gets back to what we were talking about at the very beginning and the very, the various different types of gay men I've played in the past five to 10 years or whatever. A lot of the roles in, in, in the last 10 years of my adult life have, have, and maybe it's just where I am in my own life, but they have, um, affected my life outside of the work in a way that I don't know I was as aware of for the first 20, 30 years of working or whatever, uh, of, of, well, back in school, but you know what I'm saying. Um, but again, I don't know if that speaks to the work. It probably does to some degree, but a lot of it also speaks to me in, a, in, a, in an eagerness to find new things and things like that. And um, yeah, um, it's also different to be at this point in career and life and making or trying to make more conscious choices about what I'm doing. Whereas, you know, for so many years, it was, um, I just wanted to work, you know, and um, I was very fortunate. The things that I did end up working on were very rewarding and I got so much out of them and I feel like I was able to give so much to them, but, but so much of it was not choice. You know, this is, this is a fairly new development in my life of like, does this sound interesting to you? And before, like I say, interesting was like, does it pay rent? Um, you know, <laughs> that's a different way. And I think that has something to do with, with the way um, things are affecting me now and, and what I'm getting to do. Also, I, I mean, something I'm fascinated by you about is, 
you have several roles, and I'm thinking of in Ryan Murphy's Hollywood, which I thought you were fabulous in, um, in Hidden Figures, where and, and actually a little bit in Boys in the Band, where I would describe you as scary. I mean, like, it's just, uh, there's a quality in these characters where, like, there's a taken aback quality by how, whether they're self-loathing or just destructive. Um, it's yeah. not something I would have guessed you had in you really, you know, as like a, a kind of bubbly, uh, effervescent sitcom star. Mm-hmm. And is it a pleasure yeah. to be scary in on screen? It's, it, it's a pleasure to explore. It's a pleasure to explore my best guess and working through of the reasons why those men are doing some of the things they're doing that are scary, less palatable. Um, you know, hidden fig um, uh, Hollywood and playing that agent who was so predatory um, was really a major moment for me as an actor. I, I, I'm not saying the way it was received or whatever, but I mean, just going through that process. For one thing, there was this glorious book. Um, and now I'm forgetting the author's name, but it's a biography about Henry Wilson. And it's called the man, the man who created rock Hudson. And, it, that was the first time I had played a character that I had kind of a, a literal Bible almost to go by about his history and what made him up and the way he worked. And that was very powerful for me. It, it, it gave me so much information that gave reasons for why he was doing what he was doing, but also gave me as an actor such a beautiful, just psychological foundation of where I was coming from. And, um, and and Michael's book is not dissimilar. Not that Michael, in spoiler alert, does create, uh, scary things like that. But it was it was the same situation with like having a Bible for a character like that that I could go back to and and always kind of place it to as deep a human place as I could find. But but then which is what connects to the scary part. I do enjoy finding. I think a lot of actors do enjoy finding that what is the humanity in them that in order to either protect themselves or try and find what's best for them. They're, you know, they're trying to be happy. They want to be happy people. But so what is it that detours off into this scary land? And um, yeah, I I guess in the name of like um, humanistic puzzles, that's there's, there's nothing finer. There's nothing more enjoyable. Not that it's easy to play nice people necessarily. I think a lot of actors I've watched over the years get overlooked when they play like a really well done every man and a good guy. I don't think it doesn't look as hard. And I think that's complete nonsense. I think it's, it's just as hard, if not harder. <laughs> Some of your recent work has been, you know, with Ryan Murphy. And I feel like we know so much about him throughout his career um, and how he got to be able to tell the stories that he wants to tell. But what's interesting to me is, you know, you worked on Big Bang Theory with Chuck Lorre. And I feel like as a television Icon, we know his work, obviously, Dharma and Greg, you know, we know Sybil, Grace Under Fire. Um, but, you know, I don't feel like we know much about him as sort of like a storyteller the way that we do like a Norman Lear or like an Aaron Spelling. Like, was there something about working with him for so many years that sort of like showed you like why this person has created so many successful sitcoms or like something you learned being on the show early on that sort of like told you like, this is how this show is going to keep going. Yeah. There were two major things and they're certainly related. The first, the reason, this is just my opinion, but I think the reason that Chuck has been as successful as he's been with these shows is that he has an incredible sense of rhythm and musicality. And I think, I think that's 
valuable in a lot of these art forms, be it theater, movies, or television, but it's especially valuable when you're talking about these half-hour sitcoms. And like I always said, I feel like he's a master at being able to hear an episode of TV almost play like a good pop song. It's something you can listen to again and again. It goes by at a certain beat, you know, you can dance to it as it were, or laugh to it. And, um, and that affects his overall view. It certainly did for our show, every single episode. I, I said this too. I said, if you watch any episode of our show, there's always this moment at the end where, or almost always where the black, the blackout, with his name appearing comes just almost a half beat too soon. It almost kind of gets you on the edge of your seat in a way. And it's, I always thought it was genius. I was just like that. It just gives you that sensation. Oh, it's over. And like, you want more. Um, And I don't think it's trickery, but I think it's a good ear and a good rhythm. Uh, The second thing though, that, you know, got him to where he is, is that it's, it's very important. It can be very important to have one major eye, one major voice running a show. And even though plenty of other people rose up, especially like a Steve Millar was really our showrunner by then, but even that was under the Chuck umbrella. And until you have a lot of power or until you create that power for yourself, it can be hard. And a lot of other opinions can dilute um, the product as it were. And, and when we were with him, he was, he was the the top guy and the, the where the buck stopped from day one. And that allowed us to really execute this vision. It just happened to resonate with people, thank goodness. But but the vision was never in question as far as like, oh God, a bunch of opinions from other executives and stuff are gonna stick. They were like, no, they trust trusted Chuck. He trusts himself. And that's where we went forward. And that that's enormous. There's, you know, that's a lot of there's a, that's a confident groundwork to be coming from. Now, obviously, some of that musicality would come in the editing, but I imagine acting in the show, you must be playing to, you know, this Lydia Tarr type person's sense of rhythm when you're uh, (laughs) creating a show. And I imagine that can be super daunting or to to pick up initially. Is that something you had to kind of find over time? Um, No, actually, Um, which didn't mean it wasn't daunting, but it was how I felt immediately that I didn't know if they would end up casting me, but I felt that it was a really good part for me. And I thought I can, I, I believe this could happen. We'll see. But it it had everything to do with that. There was something that they'd written and the way he was talking and the way their scenes went. And I just, I felt that I could hear it. I thought I could hear what they were going for. Um, uh, but it, it, what's funny is that it is a double-edged sword. There is, there is such joy in, in getting the, or for me, there was such joy in feeling like I was getting those rhythms right and getting with them what they wanted. Um, and there were other times that it, there were, you know, and I've experienced this a lot more lately with some single camera work, you do different takes, you do different takes different ways or whatever. And it's, it's an, it's a different set of muscles because, there was, it's not a rigidity that we had, that I felt I had in the sitcom, but I, I did feel I was the, I was serving the, the, the idea of the rhythm and, and, and I was, and, um, and it's different in other work. It's, it was different in this movie. It's different in, in the play I'm doing right now or whatever. It's just, it's, I don't want to say it's exactly a more free, but um, it's just another way of exploring. But that being said, in that rigidity, in that, um, maze that they'd set up 
there is a great freedom because you know what points you have to hit. And in that, it can be really, really fun. It was really fun. It was always really fun in that way. Yeah. But they're different. Yeah, it feels like even like the syllables of what you're saying are blocked to a certain extent uh, on Big Bang Theory. Without a doubt, doubt, you know, and I beat myself up one side and the other, getting those lines down as much as I could, because I was like, I don't have, there was no space for, um, or, hmm, I mean, it just didn't exist, you know, if I didn't know what to say next, we just had to stop, and then I I could start over, but trying to like, sigh and humanize your way through, it was never going to work. Uh, I did crave that at a certain point. I was like, oh, God, please just let me roll my eyes or something for a minute. And it's fine. <laughs> you know, um, you're currently also in um, I think you said uh, a play right now. It's that that's Terrence McNally's A Man of No Importance. Um, yes. Sort of was Terrence's work something that you were obviously heavily familiar with while you were, you know, doing theater in Houston? And was this sort of like a joy to be able to act in one of his plays, you know, so soon after his death? Yes, it definitely was. I had grown up, obviously, hearing the name Terrence McNally my entire life. Uh, in theater and whatever, all the plays he'd written. And um, in the last eight years or so of Terrence's life, that we had been in slight communication over trying to get something going, um, either revival of something or whatever, and it never worked out. And when he passed away, you know, I don't think Terrence took it as a <laughs> as a, a regret to his grave, but I felt regretful. I was like, I'm, I feel I regret that that didn't happen. And so when I got this notice that about this play, I did not know it. It was it's a man of no importance. It's also a musical. I had never heard it. I had never seen it. I did not. Terrence had written it. I, all I knew was that John Doyle was directing it. And I don't know if you know John Doyle's work, but like he did the. Um, Sweeney Todd on Broadway and Company on Broadway. They're mm-hmm. just phenomenal. The instrumental and, um, ones. Yes. Yeah, yeah, And gorgeous. so I, want, I want to work with John, you know. And then I opened up the play to read it. And I was like, oh, my God, Terrence wrote the book for this. And then I found out I, one of my closest friends is director Joe Mantello, and he had directed the original production. Mm-hmm. And then I found out that the a role that I was being asked to do was originated by Roger Reese, who had passed away several years ago, and I'd worked with him at the Old Globe. And I was just like, it was one of those moments of going, you're going to do this. <laughs> this is, everything is telling you, just do it. So, um, so here I am. And it's been a wonderful, life-changing experience. It really has. Oh, man. Have you ever read um, Love, Valor, Compassion? I, I was a latecomer to that play. And over the pandemic, several friends and I like, read it over Zoom. And it's like, for, as, as a gay guy... It's weird sometimes to read like lines that you would actually say. Like I would make that same joke about who whomever, Barbara Stanwyck or whatever, you know? It's like it's weird to feel yeah. that scene, you know. It is. It is and it is it's a, such a beautifully written play and I have a very deep connection with it because when I was 20, 21 kind of coming out of the closet in Houston, you know, and this is in the early 90s we're not AIDS is still a very scary i mean i still think it is but it was it it was very scary as a young gay man to start feeling out your sexuality and aids hovering there and i remember seeing a production at the alley theater in houston of love valor compassion and i both loved it and it scared the shit out of me because it dealt so frankly with someone dealing with that with all of them as a group dealing with that and um my palms sweat a little bit just talking about it with you like i'm remembering sitting in there and going 
I love this. And I am, I'm a little scared being confronted with this. Um, but anyway, this just all speaks to the impact Terrence had. Yeah. And a Joe also directed, um, my favorite Terrence play, uh, The Ritz. I saw that, the revival with Rosie Perez in it back in 2007. Oh, yeah. I've never seen it. Yeah. yeah. It was fantastic. Um, as someone who grew up in, you know, working in theater so much, and now, obviously, I would assume, you know, you have the ability to sort of um, work with roles that um, interest you now um, and maybe pick even a play that you would want to shepherd to off-Broadway or Broadway. Are there any roles that you have played before that you are really excited to maybe do again or a play that you've like i've always wanted to play this uh but i hope i get the opportunity to honestly not so much i've never been i've never been very good at that it's not that nothing's ever interested me but the few times it has and i've brought it up to somebody it it rarely seems to go anywhere um you know, now new material, spoiler alert, is a great example. That was something that me and my company got the rights to and, and it turned into this. But it's something like you say, like a role that I've always wanted to play or whatever. I've brought, I feel like a couple of times I brought it up to people I trusted or whatever. And it's just never it's never taken off for some reason. And I think there's just something about the way I work or who I am and the way people work with me that it needs to be a much more collaborative decision. There's something... There's something slightly inorganic about me. I know a lot of people do it, but for whatever reason, something slightly inorganic about me saying, no, I want to play this and I want you to direct it. Um, and I think part of it is that I really want to feel everyone is on board from a very deep place and interested in it. I, I'm, I would be not as comfortable knowing somebody was doing something, even if they wanted to, part of it was because they knew they, they were doing it for me because I wanted them to do it with me. And and maybe I'll keep growing and changing and I'll I'll develop that more. But um but I do love entering a room knowing everybody's there for some maybe even slightly mysterious personal reason. Um like you you can never know for sure what it is exactly they connected to about this to be in this room. Um yeah. I think you're, if you're firm and you just say, look, it's me, Jim Parsons, I'm going to be playing Amanda Wingfield in The Glass Menagerie, and you all have to accept it, and that's that. I think people just jump on board. I don't know what you're so self-conscious about. I think that's a different fight. I think that, that it would be, would be willing to make that fight, going, God damn it, we're doing this. Um, outlandish has never been a problem. It's, it's the nuance that I get, I get you know, touchy-feely. Um. I guess maybe last question. Um, obviously, in this film, you get to work with um, the iconic Sally Field. You oh, know, of course, like yes. how was how was that like um, being on set with her? Lewis and I know have met Sally because we're friends with her son Sam. Um, but to be able to act with her, yeah, um, it was breathtaking to be honest with you and not because she was doing things right and left you're like look at her go but um it was just it was it comes with a history you know it comes with a very if you're an actor especially i think it comes with a very powerful history uh she's someone that you've not only grown up with but she's top tier of actors you admire and and aim strive to bring your version of that kind of power and passion that she's always brought to her things. Um, and, and breathtaking in the, 
normalcy of sitting there offset with her and talking about life scenes, the dog, whatever, and, and that kind of thing. And how, you know, it's one of those moments where it's shocking and also a huge relief to realize that somebody that you've admired so much is just an actor <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's, when as gifted as she is, she's just going through the same rigmarole that we all are. And she's doing it in, in for some overlapping, similar reasons, a desire to storytell, a desire to experiment and play with these other emotional aspects of being human. And, and then, you know, she's just, she's just her. Um, but Few people bring the kind of gravity to any scene she walks into that she does. I'll say that uh, it's just it's instantaneous, and um, and and I, I think it's probably something she's always done, but it's definitely something she's multiplied in intensity. I imagine over the years from working so much, um, and I'm just so damn grateful she did the movie. I mean, it adds her mere presence in it, and I don't mean name wise, although there's certainly that, but just her mere presence as an actor in this film. Uh, elevates it and 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 again lends a depth of humanity to it that some aspect would not be there as as much if it weren't her doing it you know there is just an extraordinary normalcy quality to sally field two-time oscar winner i'm just saying if you sat down with glenda jackson she's going to be a little bit hair raising with you you know what i mean whereas like sally just immediately locks in (laughs) (laughs) true well sally is always just like everyone's mother sally field and and it's funny because i feel that and there is truth to that but i if i'm allowed to say this and say what a sex pot i mean you go back to like smoking in the bandit or whatever it's like that's nobody's mother. That is, she's just, so she's, you know, but I think that too, it all goes in this whole capsule of like, she's worked long enough and done so many different things and done them so deeply and so well that she is a human and a woman who she kind of brings all of that with her. And, and that's part of the power is, you know, all of that's there. She's not simply this. She's not simply that she is a very layered human being. And Yeah. Yeah. Any idiot could have told you that, but I just did it for you. Well, thank you so much for being here, Jim. Uh, thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure. What a pleasure. Yes, thanks. Come on back anytime. With or without Sally. Thank you. Jump into the world of Wildcrats at Philadelphia's Please Touch Museum. Explore the world of this PBS Kids series in the Wildcrats Creature Power Museum exhibit, opening May 31st. Discover animal habits from around the world as you swing through the trees like a spider monkey, sneak through the forest like a jaguar, hunt for lunch like a platypus, and much more in this adventurous new exhibit. Get tickets at pleasetouchmuseum.org. That's pleasetouchmuseum.org. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app 
and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. As 2022 comes to a close, it's time for everyone's favorite end of the year tradition, getting mad at a list someone posted online. Uh, uh, I love it so much. It's the least productive anger ever. I love it. Yes. Sight and Sound has released the definitive greatest films of all time, and the reactions have been mixed, and some of them have been wild. Um, we can say that, you know, listen, most of the reactions are coming from the fact that there's a new number one on the list. Um, this is sort of their longest running um, critics poll and they sort of do it like every decade uh, and people get to submit their own top 10 lists. And this year, Chantal Ackerman's um, Jeannie Dillman, 23, Quad de Commerce, 1080, Bruxelles, took the top spot. Uh, it's the first film from a female director to achieve the honor since the poll began in 1952. And the girls are tussling. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, and it's also, also the only the fourth movie ever to to be ranked number one. Previously, Vertigo had gotten it, Citizen Kane, and Bicycle Thieves. Um, I mean, it does feel completely out of nowhere to me, much as everybody loved uh, the director, <laughs> Chantal Ackerman. Um, and also, it's a very... The, the movie is very interesting, even just uh, the, the description of it, before you get into how insular and, like, bracing it is as a film but it's a, a woman who's a widow and her life is extremely regimented like everything down to the hour occurs the same every day and after her husband dies uh sh she maintains she's a, a prostitute from five to five thirty every day and uh uh certain things start to slip up they're like things in the routine that change and the movie is about what happens when um you know, she's, these slip-ups continue to, to occur. I won't spoil it beyond that. Um, I, to me, what's always the most fascinating about this poll is what falls off the list because seemingly for no reason, people just get sick of, you know, ballyhooing certain movies. Like, I, I, I guess, mm. you know, like what fell off, the, like The Godfather 2 fell off the list. Really interesting. Why? You know, it just people got sick of sticking up for it or what? You know, um, Fanny and Alexander, the great, uh, Bergman, Bergman epic. Yeah. Chinatown, Nashville. Uh, I, in fact, I think someone said there's no Altman on the list at all, which is for me bone chilling. Mm -hmm. I think what really happens too, and you know, like there's people who are very upset about it, like Paul Schrader, uh, um, who I adore, so I'm not going to drag him on this show. Um, but I did really hate him being like this was a example of like the list going too woke because i hate when people use the you know like you sound like fucking ron DeSantis for one yeah uh, totally. and two it's it makes sense because you know it's we finally have more critics of color and like female critics and obviously they're going to champion the films 
that they care about. Um, and Jeannie Dillman, like, has really sort of become this, like, cult classic, you know, amongst, like, a certain set of film critics at a certain point. And, like, it makes sense that that would jump up. You know, is it still going to be at number one in 10 years? I doubt it, you know, but something else probably will. And I do want to say that, um, and I think we've got a lot of tweeted this, like, if you don't think that some of the best films ever are currently being made now, then, like, what are we even doing here? You know, right. Uh, totally. Obviously, Jeannie Dealman is, you know, um, from 70s. 1975. But, you know, like there were people mad that like Portrait of a Lady on Fire was like um, up there on the list, you know, and it was like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Moonlight, you know, it's like, yeah, we, we every year we should be striving to like make some of the best films that have ever been made. And like if a film comes out and it's fucking amazing and it's 2022. Like, you know, lists are arbitrary anyway, but it's like, I'm not going to fight about whether or not, you know, like, Moonlight's better than fucking Chinatown, you know? Yeah, right. Also, by the way, just that entire vibe, first of all, if you're a fan of Paul Schrader, I recommend not reading his Facebook, just ever. But secondly, (laughs) like, the whole, like, idea that, like, oh, you're really killing the vibe by bringing in these new movies or whatever, or you're full of shit or whatever, it's like, what you're saying is it's just no fun for you to, like be into a movie that's for example about women or about people of color you know it's like or queer people because like by the way there are so many films in this list that you're going to necessarily disagree with and just say like oh i don't really like that one as much as i like this other one why are these the sticking point like can we take two st- seconds to think about why it's really like you know you can't get over these two it's just really annoying and i it, think transparent it's also just like i don't know as someone who comes from like theater too you know it's like there are constantly new plays being made that are fucking amazing. And like the whole point of being an artist and a writer and a director is to say something about the human condition. And I would just have to think that a film being made now says a bit more about the human condition than Raging Bull. Right, right. It's just an amazing it's a- film. But like, you know, like we have moved past how we thought about society and about how we thought about men and everything else, like from like the 70s. You know, like you should expect that newer films are going to pop up on the list. You're going to expect that also, like, we're going to stop talking about certain films um, as time passes. And it doesn't mean they're not great anymore. And like I said, like, it's a fucking arbitrary list. But at a certain point, like, you, you can't put every film that's ever made on the list, you know? So, like, you have to start, like, moving with what people are interested in watching. I'm sure, you know, people making films in the 70s, you know, like um, those films before they were considered cult classics or, you know, just sort of like AFI's best films, you know? Like, I'm sure people were like, oh, this isn't um, Bicycle Thieves. Right. (laughs) I think something that also sticks with me is like, so I grew up on these like AFI lists of the 100 greatest movies, which were, they they did one in the 90s and then did an update of it in the 2000s. And they largely resembled each other. But something that has always stuck with me is that like, you know, for instance, like The Godfather is always near the top or Mm -hmm. Lawrence of Arabia is always near the top. Not on the sight and sound list, by the way. Lawrence of Arabia fell off. But... I think something not on Julie Gash's list. Yeah, right. <laughs> Julie Gash's ten. She was like Lawrence of Arabia. I think something that sticks out to me is that even though nobody would argue that like The Godfather isn't artful or whatever, it's also like men are interested in in themselves, and so they get to then mistake that for having taste. When it's like, <laughs> if The Godfather were about women, I'm not saying there's. 
I need that movie. I'm not saying like I, I want the Ocean's Eight of Godfather, whatever. It's like you just wouldn't be as interested in it, even if it were the same amount of artfulness within the film. So I think when I look at a lot of these lists of old movies, it's like men choosing to believe their own stories, and namely white men choosing other white men is the best. It's like touting whiteness. I mean, I, I, I think that's what it's about and touting being a white man. I love The Godfather, but I'm also like, if we're talking about um, a Coppola film, you know, um, I'm like, where's Peggy Sue? Please. I mean, now we're speaking my language. My God, what a great uh, performance from Kathleen Turner. Um, but again, I think men being interested in themselves conflated with prestige has always happened thanks to these lists and i feel like interrupting that is something that's kind of rad like I'm, I'm sort of thrilled to hear like other things break through the ranks and people have to actually consider you know the points of view that don't fit into that column to quote glass onion we're the disruptors <laughs> by the way glass onion i liked better than the first knives out i saw that over the break i did too i did too i like I'm, I'm gonna talk about that more later with the episode but like i fucking love Glass Onion, and and I think that is a thing about what movies do for you. By the way, because when Knives Out came out, you know I was obsessed with that movie. I loved it. Yeah, it took Knives Out to Glass Onion um, for me to see Ryan Johnson improve on what he did in Knives Out, and now I enjoy that one so much better. And it makes my opinion of Knives Out, which I do still love, like lower a bit because I'm like this movie's better than it. Yeah, right. Um, which egotistically you can handle. That's yeah. nice to see. I love that. Wow. And Set an example for the sight and sound people. Uh, um, but, you know, I feel like direct, you know, like each director, a new movie that they make, you know, should be like improving, you know, if it's not improving on what they did before, it should have something different to say. And I think, you know, mentioning Peggy Sue got married, like I said, or, you know, like even the Scorsese films that are on this list, you know, like I love Alice doesn't live here anymore, you know? And I think that, what we're seeing now is, especially like this coming from someone who went to NYU for film school, you know, I think that you get tired of not just these AFI lists, you get tired of being in film school and hearing constantly people tell you right, what the right. best movies are, and they have, those have never changed. Someone is always mentioning the same, like the t- top 10 has always seemed the fucking same. You could write out a list, you know, um, with your eyes closed. You know, and you could sort yeah. of guess what the list would be. I think that's also why people were dragging Ty West's um, list. Ty West, the director of um, Pearl um, and X. And um, his list was very just sort of basic. The canon, uh, like like down the yeah. line, like famous movies. Like, what was it? Psycho and... Mm, hold on. It was, uh, it was, it was uh, Psycho, Citizen Kane, Godfather, 2001, Apocalypse Now, Sunset Boulevard, Chinatown, Jaws. Taxi driver, easy rider, like, sure. Yeah, <laughs> right. We've all seen those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which is so And by funny, the way, people don't dislike those movies. Like, it, no. it, is, it is just weird to see them all immediately chosen, though. It's, like, mm-hmm. funny. Well, know? I think it's what's, – what's actually funny about it, um, and what's funny about this whole sight and sound list in general is people were angry at his list because they felt it was basic, and they felt that, like, it didn't tell you anything about him as an artist, the films that he picked – but then on the flip side, you can't be angry if the list then doesn't represent where art and criticism is now, because every individual critic picking a list um, is going to pick films that like represent their sensibilities. Yeah, in a way, I guess it's sort of admirable that he pulled himself 
out of it. I, I mean, and was quote unquote objective about what he chose, but of course nobody's objective. Anyway, mm. lists are fun to argue about. So I made a personal top 10 list. If you oh, want okay, to argue about that. <laughs> are they actually like tiered? Is it like one means the most and 10 means 10th best? Um, I would say actually, yes. All right. I'm ready to okay. shoot this down. Okay. Yeah, yes, mine, act, mine actually is tiered. Number one is All About My Mother, El Motivar. Uh, I mean, you would think we saw a little bit more of him in these rankings. Uh, yeah. Uh, he really is an astounding living artist. And I can't even... Like, Penelope Cruz in Parallel Mothers last year, he, like, did it again. Like, it, it, he really comes back again and again with these, like, juicy... I, I would call his movies succulent. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect word for his movies. Actually. Thank you so much. Uh, and no, I would say that him, like, as you know, like he's almost he's like old guard at this point. But because it's movies have so many women in them, because they're so queer, and because they're just you know like outwardly in your face with being like faggy movies. Um, yeah. You know, men who make these other lists, you know, like don't necessarily relate to um and, and El Motobar film. And I recommend they get on it because it's a good time. Uh, number two would be Eve's Bayou by Casey Lemon. I knew, I absolutely knew Eve's Bayou was coming up. I had my Journey Smollett take already. She's great in Eve's Bayou. We know that's a fucking keep it classic. We're always talking about Eve's Bayou. Um, another keep it classic is number three, Written on the Wind by Douglas Burke. Oh yeah, where I think still the only movie where somebody is mamboed to death. And, you know, I would, there should be an entire industry about that. Um. Four is uh, Mildred Pierce by Michael Curtis. Oh, please. Uh, first of all, everybody in that movie. I mean, it's famous for being a Joan Crawford vehicle, but Eve Arden in that movie and Blythe, who is still with us. Uh, I think maybe ever since Angela Lansbury died, that's the person in the earliest nominated performance who's still alive, Anne Blythe and uh, Mildred Pierce. Um, is that the film that she was nominated for? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Five would be, and this was hard because I love Hitchcock, and I was like, which one uh-huh. do I pick? I pick Psycho. Well, let me tell you, when, the last time I watched Psycho, I really am shocked by how many of the choices seem downright contemporary. Like the pacing of the scary moments is really feels really modern, um, which is, inter- I mean, you know, it's this black and white movie from 1960 starring you know quintessentially 1960 people like Anthony Perkins and Martin Balsam and uh, Janet Lee, etc. It, it in a way it, different than all other Hitchcock movies, it stands out as sh- full of modern choices. And because I think it's so about the voyeurism um, yeah. of Norman Bates that it sort of fits into Hitchcock's um, filmography, but it doesn't feel gross. I guess, like you were saying before, like thinking about like how he treated Timmy Hendrick on set. You know, like the whole point of Psycho is that it's exploitative. Yeah, right. And he's right. Obviously, the last 10 minutes of Psycho are somebody looking to camera and explaining why this person is deranged. Um, and I think by that's the way, fucking and, bonkers and a beautiful film choice. I fucking love it. It's so Bond. <laughs> yeah. It's so, I mean, it's, it's just like um, another film, number 10 on the list, actually does that too, but in a more modern way. Um, but I will get to that. I say number, number six is All About Eve. By Mankiewicz. Oh my god! I mean, like, I'm never done loving all about Eve. I, I think 
I think something that like makes a movie legendary to me is there are great lines I keep forgetting. You know, it's not just the two great lines. There's like 25 great lines in All About Eve. And all of the characters get are, are specifically their own entities. You know, Celeste Holm is not like um, Margot che- or, uh, uh, Betty Davis, who is not like Thelma Ritter, et cetera, or Ann Baxter. But they all get these sophisticated moments to be uh, witty and observant about other characters in the movie. It's just, it remains one of a kind. So fat. And of course, the wonderful George Sanders and his wonderful voice. I mean, I think that too is why I love like mysteries or like even a film like A Glass Onion, right? Like it's part about ensemble pieces. Isn't just each character getting to comment on the other characters in the film. Totally, totally. I think that's one of the thrills of it. And like, for instance, like a movie like Clue, I think that's one of the, like, mm-hmm. you know, Miss Scarlet, like getting to like roll her eyes at Colonel Mustard or whatever. You know, there's lots of interplay between the characters. I also want to say about Glass Onion, clearly a shout out to The Last of Sheila, the St- Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins written mystery from the 70s where a millionaire invites his, um, strange suspicious friends on a uh a, a, like a, a puzzle caper that ends up going awry uh seven is a spielberg film can you guess which one yeah i bet i can hold on hmm i don't know that you would say et but i'll say et jurassic park oh interesting i mean we love it jurassic park i, a movie I was... I've, I've probably seen more than any other uh uh no wait et is the movie i've seen the most but jurassic park is the one that would come on tv the most among mm. spielberg movies i would say et came on tv a lot but i was never hooked into et the way i was hooked into jurassic park my grandmother always reminds me like how fucking obsessed i was with dinosaurs this. oh it was unavoidable in that time yeah I was taken just I, at a certain point i was just dropped off at the movie theater in milwaukee because i saw jurassic park every weekend uh, uh, and that's turned you into the person you are today. You're actually dressed like what's her name in that movie? Ellie Sackler. I, I assume your shirt is tied in the middle. Um, also, that's just like I feel like that just tells you about like that's why I'm excited to see the Fablemans too. I just feel like that just is like such a symptom of Spielberg and movie magic. You just sit down and you watch Jurassic Park, and it just you feel like you're watching a film and you're transplanted to a world. Like that's what made me love movies. I did not love the Fablemans, I have to uh, say, and I didn't love Michelle Williams in it either. But we'll get into that another week. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, it's just—it's just, it just opened up in theaters here, so I'm going to see it, and then we can talk about it. So, um, number eight is West Side Story, the original. Mm. Uh, I mean, if you watched West Side Story alone, you might be fooled into thinking Natalie Wood is among the worst people we ever propelled to stardom, but she's not. She's great in many movies. But, uh, of course, Rita Moreno, of course, George Shakiris, yes. Nine is Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together. Oh, that's what you chose, as opposed to uh, any of the other Wong Kar Wai's that usually dominate these um, listy roundups. Yeah, I mean, listen, I could have gone with In the Mood for Love, I could have gone with Chunking Express, but you know what? I'm like... I saw that movie only a few years ago, but it really just sort of like hooked me and I haven't been able to get it out of my brain ever since. Uh, I think it's a really beautiful love story too. And it's about two men. So um, it's my in the mood for love. Okay. Very good. Um, In the mood for our love. Yes, (laughs) Uh, We love a different way. We talk a different way. (laughs) Happy Together is an alien superstar, okay? Yes. Uh, <laughs> and 10 is the one that I said is a little bit like Psycho uh, in that it explains everything at the end, but 10 is Scream. Oh, yes. I, I 
think Scream remains one of the most pleasurable movies I've ever seen. And and I feel that way every time uh, I watch it. It's I, it's almost like if you only had the comedy in that movie, it would still be its own movie. If you only had the horror in that movie, that would still be its own perfect. But it's this mesh of personalities and like very Gen X cynicism and genuine scares. You know, just everybody is their A game and... I mean, like, like, I would die for Nev Campbell. Like, I, yeah. I don't know that I would have ever said that in my lifetime. Nev Campbell is, like, <laughs> absolutely essential. It reminds me of Ryan Johnson talking about um, Agatha Christie books. Um, he was, I went to this talk that he had about Glass Onion at Vulture Fest. Uh, and he just talked about how people, you know, put Agatha Christie into this sort of, like, um, you know, they pigeonhole her. But really, every book is sort of, like, a different genre. And, like, you know, there's, like, the ABC movie which was sort of like uh, the ABC murders, which is so different. And then there's, um, and then there were none, which is very much like slasher. And it's, I feel like Scream operates as a horror film, um, a comedy, but also it's just like a really good whodunit. You know, I feel like the yes. slasher mm-hmm. element, you know, in, in those earlier slashers that were inspired at like prom night and shit like that. It's like, you know who the killer is, really, or like you know why they're doing it. Um, and what's beautiful about Scream is like you don't know the motive for the murders, and you're also you're fr- trying to figure out the motive, and you're trying to figure out who did it. And then the end scene in the house, you know, uh, with Stu and Billy, is really sort of just like drawing room, um, yeah, Perot, Columbo moment, but reversed because the killers are holding them captive, and they're explaining why they did everything. And I think it's just sort of like a really beautiful movie that changed a lot about the horror genre um, and things that came after it. Um, And if horror was given more respect, I think the Scream would have a lot more honors um, and would be higher on people's lists. I also just in general, it makes me realize that there aren't too many movies that you can say are classic whodunits. You know, it's just like mystery is not really a genre that, I don't know, has fared well over time or that we've even attempted that much. I remember when the AFI did a list of the best mysteries ever, like Vertigo came in at number one. And that is technically a mystery. I mean, like what you find out at the end explains a whole lot, but it's not really like a whodunit like that. You know, it's not that classic thing of there's these seven people and it's one of them or what, you know. So to get that in the form of Scream uh, is fabulous. And of course, I thank Ryan Johnson for being obsessed with that genre itself, you know, for yeah. doing, giving us more of that thing I don't think we've had enough of historically. Yeah, he's found his niche and he's stuck with it. So Definitely. that's my list. That's my top 10. You know, I think probably I'm like, I, I think was, I'm proud of you. Thank you. I was like, I was close to like either putting like Spike Lee's Crooklyn or De Palma's Blowout on it, but I'm happy with the list. Uh, of course, mine would be, let's see here. Um, Little Giants, which if you haven't seen Rick, Mor- Rick Moranis <laughs> at his best, you've got to think, think, get going get your sights and your sounds on little giants no i'm kidding i'll come up with my tent some other week i have not thought about little giants in forever my brother mark is obsessed with it and it just came to mind he i I think he had a date one time where he put on little giants i was like that was either really alpha or really incel i can't tell what that is so uh all right when we're back it's time for keep it And we are back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. 
I know what your keep it is already, so I'm going to let you get to it. And you know I am diametrically opposite. Okay, well, this is exciting. A real Frost-Nixon moment. Um, my keep it is to people who are obsessively annoyed about the AI Instagram phenomenon. Okay, I'm not here <laughs> saying everybody needs to download the Lensa app or we need to give all our data to whatever mysterious entity is mining it. I just think for Instagram, which correct me if I'm wrong, is about posting photos from your life, usually of yourself. We're routinely sick of seeing the same picture as in literally uh, an iPhone photo of people. This, in which you see like these comic book renderings of, uh, of people that, they, that are generated through AI. And I'm not saying that's even ethically done. I hear that like they're stealing art from artists, which then helps them generate the AI. I'm not supporting that either. I just think seeing whatever your best girlfriend from high school look like RoboCop is pretty cool. Like I, I'm into it. My friend Elise posted a bunch. I was I was almost in tears. I was like, oh my god, you look. I, I this is exactly what I think of you. You're this heroic to me. Um, so I, um, I'm not saying there aren't a ton of people posting them, and that you know if you open up your feed, it's not 100 people posting photographs. But by the way. They're not even repetitive. The, the AI is so intrinsic that you get a different looking thing every time. So it's not like I'm seeing the same artist caricature every time I open up the app. So I just think it's a way to, like, you know, oh, people look cool or their ripped bodies now look like cartoon ripped bodies or whatever. I thought it was a good look for Instagram. I've never seen this side of you. Which is? You talking about your friend Elise? No, like that actually moved me. I okay, think, well, like, good. I, I mean, it's I true. I don't know. I don't know where you are this week, but I feel like this is <laughs> this is this is a lovely side of it. But it was, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's sort of like you know, like on, on Saturday Night Live when they come back from commercial and you see a picture of the host in a way you mm-hmm. don't normally see them. It's like super artistic or it's a fun photograph, or whatever. It's like that, you know, like oh, what a cool way to look at this person. I already thought I knew. You've almost convinced me. Yeah, and but what's I will your say, problem? I will say day five, I was like, <laughs> let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. And, and nothing to me has symbolized more us becoming our parents than this. And like, it just felt like such old person on Facebook behavior. Oh, okay. Kind like, of. Yeah. And I missed the grid post because truly we have needed grid posts back on Instagram. And I was glad everyone was posting to grid again. Yeah. No, it does feel like that part of Instagram is going in a way, and I, I don't want it to. It's like how I sort of absorb information better on the app, I think. But also, it's like, it to me, the strange thing about being annoyed with this phenomenon is, so what exactly do you think is essential to Instagram? Because most of what people do is pretty fucking annoying. Like, like don't worry, guys. We'll get back to like buff guys doing three push-ups while lip syncing in just a second that's not annoying like it's so interesting to me uh, i will actually say that like i at least i am i'm living in my truth in that i was annoyed about it but i'm only expressing it here this is the first time i've ever expressed it because it's even more annoying than the people doing the ai were the people who then had to post that they were annoyed that yeah. people were posting AI and then that I was just sort of like, I don't care enough to like make a whole Instagram post about how I'm annoyed with all of my friends. Yeah. Also, of course, like gay Twitter went to the like dysmorphia place. Like this is like blank. Like this is bad for like our body image and blank, blank and blank. You literally look like RoboCop. Like who <laughs> looks at a picture of RoboCop and thinks like, oh, fuck, I need to be that. Like, what are you talking about? Also, yeah. also like no shade, but like 
half of half of the people who get his follow online contribute to bodies more of you. So right, like, yes, it's not, didn't it didn't start that. now. <laughs> yes, right. Yes, yes. This you looking like Ace and Gary from the ambiguously gay duo in a cartoon is not like ruining my day. I don't know. It's so interesting. Unfollow all the various instructors you follow. Okay, like like maybe <laughs> like maybe maybe then your your brain will be a little bit better. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm I'm like it annoyed me, but I wasn't so annoyed that I had to comment about it. God, so I won that. Okay, great. Ira, what is your keep it? <laughs> My keep it is to Netflix. Oh, for? For the release of Glass Onion. It really this is perplexing is, to me. It really is. For a company that seems to be like um, fat, nasty, broke at its lowest, uh, <laughs> Glass Onion came into theaters mad as hell it's good. Yeah. It's getting rave reviews. Audiences were like eating it up to release it for one fucking week. And then I guess we'll just watch it um, on Netflix on Christmas is leaving so much money on the table. And I was like, I thought Netflix needed the money. I thought they were like, I thought they were like hitting up people for, for cash at this point. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, so I'm like, what's not clicking here? I'm not getting it. I was extra mad because, you know, I was, I was on vacation. Uh, I was in fucking Milan and I am like frantically just searching online. Like, how do I see this movie? Cause I heard it was playing in some um, places in Europe that weren't the UK. And luckily it was playing at a theater in Milan. Um, the first one I went to, it was not playing um, in English. Um, and had no subtitles and then i found one um that was and this was truly like the second to last showing um of the night um on the last day that the movie was available so like by the grace of god and sagittarius season i got to see uh glass onion um in an italian movie theater which was great um but I'm just like so pissed off that I had to be scrambling like I was in a fucking amazing race to see this movie. Like it should have still been right. playing this week. Also, I, I just want to say about this movie in particular, I feel like people who see it in a theater get a way better experience out of this movie than you do watching it just at home where like you want like it, it's such a goofy movie. You know what I mean? Like everybody has a crazy occupation and these crazy characters and where Edward Norton lives is like insane. You want to hear people reacting to those things. Whereas when you're just watching it at home, like it's not something like, I don't know, like, like White Lotus or Game of Thrones or something where I feel like people can just sit with it. You, it, it needs to be a rowdier atmosphere. I just think it plays way better in a theater. I will say that White Lotus is so popular because it is a soap opera and Mike White knows soap operas, you know, and it's the best part about a soap opera is that the plot is languid, you know, like it takes a while for the plot to unfurl. Um, there's your really sort of repeating character beats and really just sort of like living in the vibes of it, that, or like a house of dragon, like you can watch that and sort of like your attention can dip in and out because it doesn't really matter if you focus on everything, you right. know, but yes. a film like mm -hmm. this, like this is cinema, you know, like this is, it's so much more fun in a theater watching it with people. And I'm not spoiling anything about this movie, but what I do want to say is that the twists in this movie, I think can be ruined 
heightened by watching it on Netflix. Because there's a specific moment in the film that's sort of confusing um, for movie and plot purposes. And I feel like if you're watching it at home, you might rewind it because you forgot something. Yes, and I totally. Think if you miss a key element, for you. yes. I remember thinking in the theater, I can't even go to the bathroom because I know I'm going to miss four twists. Like the movie keeps going. Yeah. It keeps like, you know, um, it's like churning out, uh, you know, uh, plot upheavals at every given moment. I also want to say, I think this is the first time I've seen Janelle Monet in a movie where I would give her an A. She was really excellent in this movie. Like, hidden she figures. She turned or, it the yeah, fuck yeah. out in this movie. Yes, no, this is her really best good work. performance. Yeah, I think so yeah. too. I think so too. Also, welcome back, Kate Hudson. Oh my gosh. No, I'm sick of having to rewatch that fucking clip from Nine for the millionth time. Let's like, we have a new Kate Hudson movie <laughs> where I, I do think Glass Onion needs to give a few more comic opportunities to everybody in it. Like, everybody could have used three more funny moments, but Kate Hudson gets a couple of scream laughs, and we needed that from her. Kate Hudson was really sort of channeling Goldie in the film too. And I'm just sort of like, please oh, come yes. back to us. Right. Oh, what a lovely um, sentence. She sure was. Anyway, yes. I love it. I love it. And, you know, like going with the theme of talking about sight and sound, um, this episode, like, I just like, I, I still love seeing a movie in theaters, you know? And it's, um, honestly, it helps for like a movie like Jeannie Dillman or like, um, I watch, I watch, um, drive my car. Um, recently too. Um, and that was, I watched it, I watched it for the first time on, on the plane back, but it felt like watching it in the theater only because like I didn't get Wi-Fi while I was watching it. So like I didn't right. have any other distractions while watching You watched. can be in the meditative space to watch it. Yeah. This era of is the only time I'm ever going to really pay attention to it is if I'm sitting and with no fucking distractions. Like it's about who Paris yeah. said. Exactly. No, 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 no snacks. <laughs> Silence. If uh, that should uh, be on French currency, come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's our episode. So thanks again to Jim Parsons for joining us this week, and we will be recording a mailbag episode soon. So send us your questions on social media or to keepitatcrooked.com. And of course, as always, remember to check out full episodes of Keep It on the Uncultured YouTube channel. And please rate and review Keep It on your podcast platform of choice. Apple, Spotify, Google Play, etc. Five-star reviews. If we gotta be, if we gotta get four stars and we're not the number one diva, then I don't want it. <laughs> to paraphrase Whitney. Uh, all right. We will see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III. And Louis Fertel. Our editor is Charlotte Landis. And Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. Jump into the world of Wildcrats at Philadelphia's Please Touch Museum. Explore the world of this PBS Kids series in the Wildcrats Creature Power Museum exhibit, opening May 31st. Discover animal habits from around the world as you swing through the trees like a spider monkey. 
sneak through the forest like a jaguar, hunt for lunch like a platypus, and much more in this adventurous new exhibit. Get tickets at pleasetouchmuseum.org. That's pleasetouchmuseum.org. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw. I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 